that scene where all like the stuff is just like flying at Luke and then he flies off like you're just like oh the dark side's like really scary and you really get like more of a feel of what the dark side means welcome to the crooked table podcast where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle and now your host robert yannis jr Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to dig into their personal connection to a current or classic release. That's what we usually do. However, we're currently covering a different film in the Star Wars saga every month leading up to the release of The Rise of Skywalker in December and the end of, I guess, the Skywalker saga as a whole. So this episode, I am pleased to welcome to the show Candace Kaw. Candace, welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me, Robert. So tell listeners a little bit about uh, who you are, I guess, how we know each other and uh, what you have going on. Um, well, we know each other from college. We worked on the Oracle, which is University of South Florida's newspaper back in the day. Go montage. I have a podcast called Geeky Girl Gap, where me and two of my friends, Vanessa and Brie, we talk about pretty much everything nerdy under the sun from a girl's perspective. And I think that's good, too, because, I mean, this is not a, this is not a revelation by any means, but the podcasting community is like, because that's, that's the big cliche, like a couple of bros just starting a podcast, like the white guys holding a podcast. And it's, it's nice to have an alternative. That's definitely why I started it. Cause what, like I do a lot of like photo editing and I do a lot of like graphic design. So I like to listen to things when I'm doing that because some of it can be pretty repetitive. And I just noticed a lot of it was just a bunch of white dudes talking. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's definitely, <laughs> It's definitely a problem, diversity in the podcasting sphere, but I think it's getting a lot better. You know, there are shows like yours, and uh, this is, there's another. I had Karen Peterson from Citizen Dame podcast on a couple, couple months ago, and uh, there are just four women talking about film, four female film critics. So, I mean, I think, you know, in the entertainment sphere, I, th- I actually think it's probably even worse in entertainment, just because it's usually, as you mentioned, a bunch of white dudes just talking about, you know, talking about Marvel and Star Wars and indie film or whatever it has, whatever, what have you, just kind of uh, getting a very myopic view of, uh, of pop culture right now. Yeah, definitely. And um, like myself and my friend Brave are both women of color or like mixed so we have a little bit of a different experience and it just, I think it just, it's good to have a different point of view about things. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, uh, thus far we're recording this in the middle of July or like the early part of July. Thus far I was, I was going to, I would ask you what your favorite, your favorite film of the year, or what the geekiest film of the year is so far. But I mean, I, I as far as geekiest, I think that answer is probably pretty obvious. So yeah. <laughs> what is, uh, what is your takeaway as far as, the, the geeky world of film for 2019 thus far? It's been a lot of sequels and remakes. It really has. It's been nothing but, and I'll have to admit that I saw Aladdin, I'm getting tickets for Lion King, all the Marvel movies, everything, you know. But I really did, um, one of the films I really loved was Late Night, Mindy Kaling's. Oh, yeah. Emma yeah, yeah. Thompson, which isn't really geeky, even though she's a big nerd. It was hilarious. I heard that, and I meant to. I meant to see it, and I, I didn't. It was actually in theaters very briefly, like in wide release. Actually, it was my dad's suggestion for Father's Day for me to take him to go see that. So I was like, "Yeah, let's go see a ladies' film." Yeah, yeah. There you go. Excellent. So, 
since we're talking about Star Wars this episode, mm-hmm. obviously, I wanted to get a little bit of a sense for what your experience is with the Star Wars saga. When did you first get into it and how big a role has it played in, uh, in your fandom, I guess, in general? Well, actually, going back to my father, he's been the reason I love movies so much. He grew up in India, so he um, going to the cinema was a huge deal for him. And they wouldn't get all the American movies, but they obviously got the big ones, like the musicals and Star Wars. So in 1997, when the 20th anniversary came out, I vividly remember this. He took me to see A New Hope. And I just remember thinking, I was a child, I was like, oh, he's the old man, I'll go watch it, but I'm not going to like it. And then I saw it, and I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> and then we ran to a rental place called Fiction and Flicks. Yes, I'm that old. And we just rented all the trilogy and I got my little sister to watch it. And then we saw it all in theaters because every month they would come out with a re-release of the special edition, if you remember. That's actually funny that that's, that was really your first exposure to it in a way, because uh, that's kind of how I got into I mean, at this point, listeners have heard my, my side of the story probably a few times, but to briefly s- summarize, that was very similar to, to my deal. Like I knew about Star Wars as a kid, but I didn't really get into it until the special editions were about to come out. We rented all three movies and I kind of absorbed them over a weekend. Uh, and then, yeah, and then saw each of the, the original trilogy in theaters, special edition wise, and it just kind of grew from there. And then I was, uh, it was a 13, I think at that point when that happened. So I was probably a little bit older than most Star Wars fans getting into it. But, um, but yeah, so th- that's very similar to my story. So that's funny. Yeah. And I mean, I had been on Star Tours a bunch uh, at, um, it was called MGM at the time, but I had no point of reference for it. But like, I remember being in the queue and some guy going like, you should watch the movies. You'd really like them. And I feel like the people who like get into Star Wars, at least before, back in the day, before there were all these movies, it's their parents were into it or they had like some family member was into it and would get you a hook. Like I got my little cousin into it. And it just became like a family thing. I think that's how it was with comic books and at least superheroes back in the day, too. Because, you know, when I was growing up, there was basically the Superman movie had come out years before. And then there was Batman. And that's about it. And now at this point, everybody knows who every superhero is, including the Guardians of the Galaxy, Ant-Man. Uh, it's it's kind of crazy. And so Star Wars and, and Marvel and really, I guess, Disney have kind of taken over everything. Yeah, it's just common knowledge now. Like back in the day, I felt very awkward as a girl liking Star Wars a lot. But now there's like freaking CoverGirl Star Wars mascara, which I do own. (laughs) I will admit to it. I don't even wear mascara that often, but I bought it because it had the Star Wars thing on it. Of course. Getting into Star Wars at that point, how did what were you? What were your thoughts on the prequels and now the sequels? Kind of putting it in context uh, since you got into the original trilogy before all of that came about. Um, I was in middle school when Phantom Menace came out and I was kind of blinded by my just childhood glee of another Star Wars movie. So I thought it was amazing because I was an idiot as a child. (laughs) And then I love the dual fates, that lightsaber scene. It was like nothing that you had seen before. So, but then I was in high school when Attack of the Clones came out, and I just remember laughing with my friends while we were watching this, being like, if a boy ever said that to me, <laughs> I would run away. <laughs> the way Anakin flirts with Padme. God. 
And uh, and we'll, I mean, that will definitely come up in this episode when we counterpoint yeah. the romance in this film with that one. <laughs> and uh, yeah, how do you? Ha- I'm just curious. How do you feel about Revenge of the Sith? No, now now how now having you know gotten caught up in the prequel hype at the time, and now having seen the fact that episodes one and two at least are severely flawed. I, I actually did a whole episode on episode three where I felt like my my uh, guest and I were. I guess it's kind of defending it because I, I feel like so often it gets lumped in with the first two, but I, I think it's a significantly better movie. Where do you stand on that? Oh, it definitely is. But I feel like that's might be just because our expectations were so low at that point. Fair. And um, actually what I really love is, have you watched the Clone Wars saga? I've seen part of the show. I know it's like what six seasons at this point. I've, I've seen all okay. of Rebels though. Okay. I love Rebels, but yeah, um, yeah. after watching Clone Wars, it makes me love Revenge of the Sith more because I feel like Anakin is more sympathetic and you can understand all the reasons why he's going to the dark side versus I had a bad dream. <laughs> well, Revenge of the Sith also compresses, like he compresses his, his turn in, you know, mm-hmm. it's basically the cliff notes version of turning to the dark side. I feel that's why I actually suggested on that episode that it would have almost made more sense for the story of Revenge of the Sith to start in episode two and then kind of carry over and have it be more of a two parter in the in the vein, I guess, of Infinity War and Endgame, the way that those are two companion pieces and have it kind of build that way. But too late for that. Now. Yeah, that's what I assume was going to happen when I was getting ready to see episode two. I was like, OK, yeah, he's going to get into he's going to start turning gonna start happening but not really no he has a temper tantrum with the sand people mm-hmm. and that's about it mm-hmm. uh so what about the the sequels just to kind of catch us up to through the force awakens i know you don't you have uh at least let's say mixed feelings about the last jedi yeah i feel like the pacing is off and there's some questionable editing choices that just didn't make sense in my head and mm-hmm. um, i just i don't like that it picks up right after um, Force Awakens. And then it's that timing again, which is an issue in Empire, but you kind of forget. Like, all this stuff is happening in, like, a few hours. Right. And I was so excited to finally have a main character, Asian woman, in this in the live-action movie. I was just disappointed with what they did with Rose. That whole casino scene was unnecessary there was nothing to it it's it's definitely a detour in the storytelling it's 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 basically a, another element that's kind of introduced i i also like the the idea the concept that they get into there where the the arms the essentially the equivalent of star wars arms dealers are supplying both sides and kind of the uh, the moral ambiguity involved there uh, but but I mean I understand what you're saying it is kind of a, a monkey wrench thrown in the middle of the actual story that's going on yeah, and but the thing is that there's so many people who didn't like it just because she was a woman and there's a lot of that. Yeah, I know stuff it's, like it's, that and all those too. So it, I'm like, I kind of have to like it because I'm like, but there were some problems. Right. It's hard to. It's hard for because there are different different camps of people who react to the Last Jedi. There is the people like me who think it's one of the one of the better Star Wars movies and actually really really love it even though i understand what you're saying and it's you know that's a legitimate take uh, there are people 
like you who, you know, have mixed feelings. You're like, well, this worked, but this didn't and have a critical, like legitimate critical viewpoint. And then there are like terrible people who hate it because it features like strong women and because they 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 butchered Luke Skywalker, even though I don't really think they did. But, you know, whatever. Um, Just, I guess, Star Wars purists and then, you know. Uh, just misogynists and things like that, I guess. It's like they all kind of get lumped in together. So that's so I, that's part of why I think it's interesting at this point going, you know, with Rise of Skywalker coming out to go back and, and rewatch all these movies. Because I was honestly, I was going to go back and rewatch all the movies anyway. So I was like, well, that it makes sense to record conversations about that and just kind of lead up to the Rise of Skywalker with it and uh, and see exactly how, how J.J. is going to tie all this together. So... That was my other issue, is that they didn't have this grand plan, which, I mean, I know George Lucas didn't either, really, but it just felt like like a round-robin story. Like, here's where I left it off at. Now you add something. Yeah. And then the whole thing, like, with Ray's parents was like, oh, they're going to go back to that? They're like, no, you said it was nothing. It doesn't matter, which I kind of, I like that her parents weren't, like, some big part of this galaxy. Right. Well, because part of why I think ending the Skywalker saga is such a smart move is that we've spent almost well, what will now be nine movies with the same family, and it, and there's all, like galaxies worth of other stories to be told. So I'm I'm hoping that that's going to really open the doors for a, a lot of you know in, interesting new characters and stories to to you know come out of this out of this universe. Definitely. So, but at least we can we can agree that the film we're going to talk about here is. Definitely one of the one of the if not the I mean I still think it's probably the best the best Star Wars movie, uh, and I and I feel like that is rarely disputed nowadays. I um, it's also you know this film actually has some some things in common with the Last Jedi in a way uh, because it is a middle film of a trilogy because it uh, from what I my cursory research was not was kind of mixed reviews from critics when it first came out like fans didn't know how to react to it there was a little bit of a backlash initially not to the same level and yeah this film the empire strikes back obviously has some elements of well luke Luke and leia kissed because they hadn't decided they were going to be brother and sister yet uh (laughs) some of those not the lack of franchise planning but this was also before everything was a franchise so i agree with you on that point that when they knew when they knew they were going to do episode seven, they should have been like, "All right, well, here's the grand plan, and at least kind of you to this vision of where we want the stories to go." Rather than, "All right, Ryan Johnson, good luck. Figure out which, what happens next, and then we'll have Colin Trevorrow, but really J.J. Abrams come in and uh, and tie up all the loose ends." So, yeah, I just don't like J.J. Abrams' um, mystery box thing. He's no, like, "The mystery is more important than what's in the box," and I'm like. No, that's not a good story. That's not good writing. This is why people stop watching Lost, JJ. I stuck and I stuck with Lost. I was actually about to mention Lost. I stuck with Lost till the end, and I was like, I mean, from a character oh, per, from a character perspective, I like the. I mean, the characters on that show are great, and the performances are great. The story is a mess, and once you get to the end, you're like, oh man, that's it. That's what it was. All right, whatever. It's like it's I usually about the journey, not I the destination. Finish. Yeah, I usually finish a TV series, but that one I couldn't. I was like, you're just adding more mysteries and you're not solving any of these. And I'm tired. <laughs> yeah, I'm very reticent now about getting involved in uh, TV shows for that reason, for the, the reason with Lost, where at the end you just felt like, 
didn't really tie together in a satisfying way for How I Met Your Mother, which I know we've talked about before. We had nine seasons, and mm-hmm. then you're like, ugh, you just wasted, like, the last five seasons or whatever. Well, I guess it's, like, three. The last, like, three seasons is really when it kind of fell mm-hmm. off the rails. Um, or Smallville, which went on forever, and I kind of got, watched, got involved watching that. Uh, in the early yeah, seasons. no, that's another one I stopped watching because they should have just let that die. It was getting it was getting a, really old. He was, was getting old. He should have been Superman by then. And it was getting it to was, a it was getting to a point during that last season that it was on, and I was just like ugh, barely paying attention. Like, are we done yet? Because I just just want to see him be Superman and move on. But anyway, that has nothing to do with what we're talking yeah. about this episode. So this episode, we're going to be talking about the Empire Strikes Back. So let's listen to a little bit of the trailer right now. Luke Skywalker and Han Solo rescued the princess, destroyed the Death Star, but their story didn't end there. Now, the creators of the biggest smash hit of all time bring you the next episode in the Star Wars saga, The Empire Strikes Back. continuing story of our band of heroes, Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, Han Solo, C-3PO, R2-D2, and Chewbacca, and introducing Lando Calrissian. It's an epic of romance. Of heroes and villains, They cross trackless voids to unknown worlds. A galactic odyssey against oppression. Big, new, sprawling space adventure in the Star Wars saga, The Empire Strikes Back. Coming to your galaxy next summer. That was a little bit of the trailer for The Empire Strikes Back, directed by Irvin Kirshner. And I always think it's funny uh, that this 1980 film from Irvin Kirshner came... This is a director that has, you know, did a lot of films, but I don't think had any like any like huge uh, releases prior to this that I'm 100 percent aware of. Um, I know he did Eyes of Laura Mars, which is a Faye Dunaway film from, I think, 1978 or something that I only know because my mom liked it. So I saw it as a kid. Uh, But really, I think the more uh, noteworthy part of the production is really the script by Lee Brackett and Lawrence Kasdan and story by Lucas and uh, let me ask you, since you, you know, since your podcast focuses on uh, geek stu- geek properties from a female perspective, do you think the fact that this is the only Star Wars film, at least of the main saga, that has a credited female screenwriter, do you think that is reflected in the uh, in the finished product? Um, I definitely do think that Leia is written better in a way. Mm-hmm. more sympathetic 
Yeah, I mean, there's some things that are kind of problematic about, like, Leia and the love story now that I look at it. And things like that. But um, it just has more heart to it than any of the other movies, I feel. Mm-hmm. I, so, so what elements, I guess, to, to get into... Leia's depiction and the love story. What elements of the of the Han and Leia uh, relationship, I guess, even though not really, uh, at this point, do you think are uh, are problematic? Um, that scene in the Millennium Falcon, which I used to think was so romantic, until I watched a YouTube video that mentions that she says like no six times <laughs> when it, when her hands are dirty. Yeah, it's like my hands are dirty too. What are you afraid of? Yeah. Yeah, that's a very common thing, I think, from films. And because I remember in the first Rocky, there's a scene kind of even more aggressive than that. Or like, you know, um, Blade Runner comes to mind where you're like, Jesus. yeah, it's a lot of Harrison Ford because Indiana Jones, too. Also, the second the the one that's a prequel, not, not oh, a yeah. sequel. Temple of Doom. Temple of Doom. Yeah. And he's she's like, get away from me. And he's like, kiss. <laughs> God. So Harrison Ford has some questionable stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's not his fault. It's the writing's fault. I do. Th- I mean, I agree with you. I think Leia and the, the Leia, uh, aside from that moment, which yeah is a little problematic. A lot of the Han and Leia uh, stuff, you can tell that this this is this is not written by Lucas, I guess, because the dialogue has a certain like crackle to it that most of the other <laughs> Star Wars movies, especially the ones written by George Lucas, do not have. Uh, he's uh, he's often said, and I've said on this podcast before, that the, he kind of views these as almost silent movies. So it stands to reason that his dialogue is usually more stilted than not. Um, so I, I think that's that's probably the uh, the element that you get when Lawrence Kasdan in the mix because of I mean he did he wrote Raiders and he was involved with Solo and little did some work on The Force Awakens. Do you think uh, what do you think is sort of the the secret ingredient in this or not so secret ingredient in this movie, I guess that helps it stand out because this is obviously, as we've, as we mentioned, widely considered the, the best Star Wars movie, one of the best sequels ever made. Uh, where do you, what do you kind of attribute to that? I think it's also the directing. Cause like, again, Lucas doesn't know how to interact with human beings. Um, just seeing behind the scenes things, he's a bit awkward. And um, I think one of the reasons is that all the, characters and the actors they're just so realistic yeah they're in this sci-fi actually the past not the future <laughs> but you can see them you can imagine them in your life right like they're real characters and they're going through things like and how you think people would react which i think is really important it's more character driven than a new hope and even Return of the Jedi. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, if you all these films are very episodic, they're sort of designed that way. They're inspired by serials, so you can usually break them into pretty three kind very distinctive acts as as far as like this takes place on Hoth, this you know, is on Dagobah mostly and this is in Bespin and and the big confrontation scene and that kind of applies to all the Star Wars movies, I think. And uh, I, I think in this film, it, it the plot, the middle section of the plot, especially, is Lucas training, and they're just running away from the Empire, and that's pretty much the the bulk of the story in this film. It's just uh, there's not much of a plot synopsis really, in, until I guess kind of the end. It's just uh, broad strokes, kind of to get the story from point A to point B in the trilogy, in a way. 
Yeah, and I mean, there's that great scene in Hoth, which it's always exciting to see any kind of like battle scenes in bright light. Because I feel like a lot of stuff is in the dark, especially back in the day. Mm -hmm. That walker scene, taking them out with the jumper cable or whatever it was. It was just cool, but it, it was also cool to see them kind of lose. Yeah, which was new at this point. I mean, uh, you hadn't really seen that in this kind of, uh, I guess, blockbuster filmmaking at that point. And the Battle of Hoth was largely a, t- a technical feat because of because of what you said, because it was done in broad daylight, in the snow with all all the white. And so it's hard to hide those those mat lines. Uh, actually, I think that's you know, one of the most obvious places that they cleaned up the the um, the effects for the special edition. Yeah, and of course, they introduced like one of my favorite characters ever, Yoda. Same, same. I love Yoda in this movie, especially. So I guess let's let's talk about Yoda a little bit. So I think that the John Williams score here is one of the probably some of the best in the whole series, and I think a lot of that is is owed to not only the Imperial March but especially Yoda's theme, which to me is one of the one of the most powerful bits of music from the whole saga. And you, you know, you get that, that moment with him uh, lifting the X-Wing out of the swamp. That's one of the most, one of the most beautiful moments in this film in general. And I, I don't know, I really love not only Yoda and the way that that character is created by Frank Oz, the way he interacts with Luke, but also the version of the force that he represents. You know what I mean? Like I feel this, I feel like this film captures what it captures and conveys what the force is supposed to be in a, in a more fascinating and more, I guess, spiritual way than a lot of the other movies. Yeah. And another thing that that does better than other movies is Yoda's actual, like a puppet. He's physically there. Unlike in the prequels where he's just like the CGI, CGI goblin. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think that helps, that helps Mark Hamill's performance too. I think that would help anybody's performance having the character kind of there versus like a tennis ball and a stick. But getting like more of that, the Jedi lore, we only got like a little bit of it from Obi-Wan and A New Hope. And then kind of just going back to Luke's like earnestness and his, um, his hero's journey continues. And I think that the, you know, you mentioned in a, in a New Hope, we get very little of the force. It's just it's an energy force that binds the galaxy together. And that's pretty much, it, you don't get a whole lot of, okay, well, but what is it? <laughs> I, feel, I feel like Ray being like, oh, you can lift rocks. Uh, she, she doesn't really know what the force is either. And I don't think, I think most of the movies have really struggled with how to explore that and develop that concept to the point where we get things like midi-chlorians, which negate some of the the more the more spiritual aspects here where it's no you need to feel it you need to connect with it and you can there's the shades of of buddhism in there where you're you know being one with nature and everything is connected and 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 all that thing all that stuff and um i i think it's not really until something like the last jedi where they really delve in like well no what is it like what is the the idea of establishing balance in the force like what does that really mean and that's a that's a question that i've been asking on all these episodes uh on all these episodes talking to people about the different star wars films is that i feel like that's the big question in a way that the rise of skywalker has to answer what what does it mean to put the force into balance uh the first trilogy 
it basically ends with two Jedi and two Sith. Is that balance? Or is it when at the end when Vader destroys the Emperor and there are no Sith and just one Jedi? Like, what is balance exactly? I feel like The Last Jedi brings up the possibility that it's about internal balance between the good, the dark and the light, where it looks like Rey might end up being something more like a gray Jedi in a way. What's your, what are your thoughts on what it means to bring the force into balance? Well, yeah, like you were saying with the gray Jedi, I always like that idea. And I think like Qui-Gon Jinn was more of a gray Jedi Mm -hmm. because obviously whatever the council did didn't work. They weren't able to see a Sith taking over right under their noses. Yeah. It just feels like this in between is more what they meant. I mean, I always thought because the prequel, uh, the prequels prophecy was like, Anakin will bring balance to the Force. And I thought after the prequels, oh, okay, well, he killed the Emperor and he ended the dark side, so that must be it. But now that they continue the, the movies, it must mean something else. Mm-hmm. It just feels like the galaxy has been flip-flopping back and forth between Jedi in control, Sith in control, Jedi. And then the prequels, I think, really highlight the fact that something that Luke mentions in The Last Jedi, that their their arrogance, like they, they as you said, they meant they let Darth Sidious rise to power and they were the dark side clouded everything. And they they didn't really handle the situation particularly well either. In a lot of ways, the Jedi and the Sith have similar problems. Uh, so so it's it's kind of. Again, as uh, Kylo Ren says, you know, let the past die. Let's move forward with something new. So I hope that that's what The Rise of Skywalker ultimately ends with. Yeah, and I think Luke discovered that maybe he was trying too hard to be like the Jedi and the Jedi Council and stuff like that. And that might have added to Kylo's turn. Speaking of uh, Luke, uh, what are your thoughts on his training on uh, on Dagobah and um, the way that 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 in a lot of ways, I feel like this film would be completely like I could see people watching this film now for the first time thinking that it's incredibly slow paced because you spend with the hero like an hour of the movie hanging out in the swamp lifting things. And I love that. I think it totally works. And like you said, I love the f- that the fact that this film is much more character than plot based. But, um, you know, what do you make of, of that uh, that take on the film? And is that is that your favorite like element of this movie is it Yoda's training? What what is your what subplot I guess or relationship do you are you more most drawn to? Um, I think it was definitely the Luke and Yoda. I mean, just building the myth mythos was what interested me even as a kid. But like also as a kid, I'm like that puppet's cool, and I like seeing the Force being used. Yeah. I mean, it was just everything. I mean, I love the Han and Leia romance. And then, of course, like the Dark Vader and Luke, them both, like, Luke trying to figure out, ah, I don't know. It's just so much. Everything's good in it. I can't. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think um, I think that Frank Oz is, is probably easily the MVP of this movie because Yoda, Yoda is the, is, I think, the X factor in a way that makes this film the best of the original trilogy. Uh, in addition, obviously, the writing is, is easily the best of the original trilogy, but it's it's also e- the most quotable Star Wars film in a way because of the writing, Definitely. because everything Yoda says is has become like integral tenets of what fans consider the force to be. Uh, things like and think thing you know lines like do or do not there is no try things like that that fans are just like spouting mm-hmm. constantly to this day, like almost forty years later, um, and. 
all of the the Han and Leia stuff, the scruffy looking nerf herder, the uh, I love you, I know, all of that stuff. It, it's it, it's just it's it's also a, like a tightly edited, like you were saying with the editing. It's very in a way, even though the the Dagobah stuff feels kind of protracted from a modern context i it the film like constantly moves like every scene it has a level of urgency in a way on the uh, on the rebel side of things because they're just constantly trying to evade the uh, empire at every turn um and, and in that in that in that you know in that part of the film we also get the introduction of uh boba fett and the introduction of well the intro i mean he shows up briefly in the uh, new hope special edition but i'm not really counting that um <laughs> and uh and lando so what are your thoughts on those two new characters and what they add to uh to the existing tapestry that is star wars um i was never really like crazy about boba fett like some fanboys were especially because i saw like return of the jedi right afterwards and then he just like goes out like a whim <laughs> yeah from like accidentally like a little sitcom kind of thing like his jetpack goes and so I was like I'm not really that attached to you but like Lando Billy D Williams is just so charismatic and charming and you're like yeah you're a scoundrel but you're a charming scoundrel I'll believe whatever you say kind of thing right and I thought Donald Glover did a great job with uh, capturing that too in Solo as well he, he was my favorite thing about the whole, yeah, the whole thing about Solo. He was like, I was like, can we just do a Lando movie instead and maybe have Han as a side character? <laughs> that This is obviously a tangent from Empire, but not really. Um, but yeah, I agree. I mean, I have friends that really love Solo and it's like one of their odd, oddly favorite Star Wars, movie, Star Wars movies. And I did not get that at all. Like, I thought it was fine. Um, but it just felt like a a Wikipedia entry come to life on Han Solo. It's like, this is how he got the ship. This is how he got the gun. This is how he got, I'm like, I don't really need to see that dramatized. Thanks. Um, so when I see all these, all these, you know, Solo 2 trending on Twitter or whatever, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm just, why don't we just pivot, make it, like oh. you said, make it a Lando movie, Lando, a Star Wars, a Star Wars story. And then, yeah, have it expand it that way. Have it just kind of be a, a chain of spinoffs, a Lando movie, and then, I don't know, a Kira movie or something, or a Maul movie. I don't, there's other ways to expand that, uh, you know, to explore that, those, those stories with Crimson Dawn and all of that without just having it be stuck on uh, Han Solo. Because I didn't think Alden Ehrenreich's performance was bad, but it's also, I don't know, it just felt like, unnecessary and in a, in a way that's silly to say because these are all fictional stories they're all in a way kind of unnecessary I guess but um it just felt like a, a detour that they could have spent that 100 200 million doing something much more interesting with Star Wars yeah and the thing is with these movies is they weren't books before they weren't legends or anything like that the care the actors are what make the characters I right. feel especially since like we've talked about like George Lucas doesn't understand human beings <laughs> So, I mean, like, like how, like, Harrison Ford changed the I love you, too, to I know. That was his idea. Because mm -hmm. he had the grasp of the character. Some, yeah, he, he helped build that character. So it was just hard to see any, like, I still thought the movie was fun. But at the same time, I was like, I don't really get that this is Han. I think they should have gone younger, like a teenager. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think he might have meant to be a teenager, but, like, and then it could be like, Kid Han, you know, having adventures. And it's a little bit more believable. But like, oh, God, what, whatever the actor's name is, was only like, was like the same year, 
age as Harrison Ford was in A New Hope. Right, exactly. I was about so to say. Like, how does this turn into that, you know? And his arc in Solo, and then we'll start, we'll stop shitting on Solo and move back to Empire. <laughs> uh, and his arc in Solo is how to be a less selfish person and care about larger causes, which is his arc in A New Hope. So I don't understand what the point of that is. You're not really building that. You're just like duplicating his story arc from one, from his debut, you know, his debut appearance in the saga and just moving it over here and just putting it in different circumstances. I don't, I don't understand what the point of that was. Yeah. It was, it just felt like a cash grab. Yeah. Yeah. And then I still see at Disney, they're trying to sell solo um, magic bands. And I'm like, guys, it's been a year. They're not going to sell. <laughs> and then Hot Topic had a Kira um, Funko Pop for $3. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. Not a bad I character. Mean, that's like I, that's the thing. I like the, the new elements they introduced are, you know, there's there is something to them. It's just, it, it, you know, in a, in a story that we don't know exactly how it plays out, it might have been a little more compelling is my thing. Yeah. So, you know, we mentioned Han and how, how the Han and Leia romance, which, by the way, makes their, their chemistry in this film, uh, which we don't see a lot of, like, we don't see a lot of the, I guess, uh, development of their feelings for each other. I, I mean, obviously, there's a spark in A New Hope, but we don't really get a lot of that. It just kind of picks up three years later and he's worked there, you know, they've been working together at the Rebel Alliance and things like that. And uh, it, their chemistry makes so much more sense now that we know that Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford hooked up on the scent of A New Hope. She went out making sure everyone knew that she had hooked up with a young Harrison Ford and she is my hero. <laughs> yeah, she I, did. She really did. Because, you know, you kind of wonder, I'm like, are they that good of actors or are they? But yeah. So yeah, it was, it was because it was real. <laughs> the fact that this was the Star Wars romance, and then we knew that we were going to get some kind of a love story with Anakin in Episode 2, which is the antithesis to this one in basically every single way. I mean, the Empire came out in 1980, and Attack of the Clones came out in 2002, but this one has a couple problematic moments. The other one is, like, problematic beyond repair. Uh, and pretty, He's basically stalking her throughout the whole movie, in a way. So... What is what is it other than that obvious difference about the the Han and Leia relationship that you think uh, that you think sets it apart and um, and you know why has that not really been duplicated in any other Star Wars movie? Well, I think one of the things is like again they have that chemistry that is just so hard to deny mm-hmm. that you feel like they've gone in adventures before before this they've have some history between the two of them they have nicknames in a way for each other you know and it just feels like they do care about each other just the way they look at each other so you're you're able to kind of forgive some of the not so great moments because you can kind of just fill in the blanks that there's more going on there it's just this character especially Han like and Leia too they both are like these tough characters but then they have these like tender moments together and they're just like feelings and the movie does a lot to establish that they have that that history. I mean, there's a lot you can there's a lot you can infer, considering the fact that we're now picking up with their their, I guess, courtship sort of midstream. Oh yeah, they discuss um, at the beginning of the movie. She's like, "Oh, I thought you were going to stay on," because he's like he's a leader of the rebellion now. So he obviously they believe in the same cause, and she's obviously really disappointed that he's leaving, even though she says it's just because he's a good leader. 
And he's like, really? But yeah, it's, they've obviously been through some stuff together. The way that Leia is, de- is depicted in the original trilogy, I think as a leader is also really important considering that, and this is something that has not, you know, not obviously not new information, but that the representation for women in the original trilogy is really, really depressing. Uh, oh, it definitely is. I could only, I only had one option for Halloween and it was Leia and I was like Leia three times. <laughs> unless you, unless you want to try and figure out a Mon Mothma costume, that's about it. Yeah. Yeah, and they don't even talk to each other. No, no. So it's Fail- like, oh, Star Wars. The Bechdel test. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say there's Star Wars, failing the Bechdel test since uh, 1977. Yeah. And <laughs> just like, I think it's like Robot Chicken. It's a scene where like Obi-Wan and Luke talk in Return of the Jedi. And he's like, I have a sister. Leia's my sister. <laughs> it's like there's only one girl. I think, or maybe this is part of my Star Wars. I did actually a... For Tampa Fringe Festival, I am Betty Jane Parks. We wrote a all all six of the Star Wars movies in under an hour. We recreated them, and we actually did Empire Strikes Back as sock puppets. Nice. And <laughs> the majority of it was the Han and Leia because <laughs> then my sock puppets are kind of funny. Yeah. I think the I think the um, the idea was initially that they were going to bring another woman into the story and introduce her as Leia, mm-hmm. as Luke's sister, but then I guess Lucas just wanted was like, oh, let's just wrap it up with a third one and just. You probably didn't want to talk to another girl. <laughs> probably he's like, oh, I have to talk to more people and figure out. Yeah, yeah. like I already have a cast. We're done. <laughs> but yeah, because they do mention in um, when Luke leaves to face Vader in Cloud City. Is it Obi-Wan or Yoda? One of them goes, there is another. Yes. Obi-Wan says, that boy was our last oh. hope. And then Yoda says, no, there's another. Which also, which now, because we know that Obi-Wan knows that Leia exists, makes Obi-Wan look like a dick who's like, ah, Leia can't handle this. Luke, yeah, only- she's a lady. <laughs> we can only, yeah, exactly. There's only one of them in the galaxy. We have to, you know, we have to k- take care of her. Um, or it was more like, we have to start all over? Yeah. Um, that always struck me as funny that scene because of that because we know that that Leia is a factor in the prequels and that Obi-Wan you know was there when she was born and so obviously he knows that that whole situation so that always felt there's a little bit of a weird disconnect there and that's one of the many little uh, inconsistencies with the the prequels specifically yeah there's a lot of that especially with Revenge of the Sith where everyone just has to be like they are like, okay, everybody, get ready for New Hope. You got to be here, and I got to be there. And just like we're, we're ready, we're ready. Even though it was just like really rushed at the end. Yeah. How this protocol droid's mind wiped? You take this baby, you take mm-hmm. this baby, and break. See you in twenty years. And yeah, Yoda's like, I'm gonna go hang out in Dagobah, even though there's other stuff I could be doing and helping people, because apparently there's still Jedi left. And according to Star Wars Rebels and Ahsoka's yeah. just hanging out out there. Go find Ahsoka, guys. Sorry, I really hope. I re- no. I mean, I was just, you know, reading uh, something online again about another, you know, the rumor that they they want to do uh, Ahsoka, like, you know, either in a movie or or a Disney Plus series or something. And I would be totally down for that, especially if they pick up from where, uh, you know, maybe where Rebels ended and kind of drive that story a little more going forward. I I would like. I I think Ahsoka is one of probably one of the few elements of the animated shows that we can 
probably count on seeing in live action sooner rather than later, especially considering I, she's the only one that I can think of that has, has broken out as such a fan favorite to that extreme where people are like, yes, Ahsoka, I'm making Ahsoka thing. You know, nobody's saying that about Ezra Bridger, for example, or anything like that. So uh, I would love to see that. I mean, Sabine has like a really big part of my heart because she's played by an Indian actress. So like her like ethnicity was kind of like a mystery, but I'm like, I'm going to pretend that she's whatever I am, you know, kind of mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. So I'm just like, Sabine would be great. But yeah. also, um, Forrest Whitaker's character in Rogue One was in Clone Wars originally as a teenager. And then they brought him to Rebels. Right. So they've yeah. dabbled in it a he, little bit now. They've done it. They've done it. So, I mean, yeah, Ahsoka, you got to wonder where Ahsoka has been with like after Return of the Jedi where Luke is. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of gaps to fill in there. That's why that's why when I see them using their resources to make something like Solo, I'm like, dudes, really? <laughs> there's so much so much other so many other things you could be doing. If you're going to make a, a spin-off film for an existing character, where's my Obi-Wan movie with Ewan McGregor? Before he gets old and crotchety like Alec Guinness did. Exactly. Exactly. But um so did you know about the Vader Luke I am your well, no Luke I am your father um twist before you saw the movie? I think I did. I, I think it's one of those things, and it's funny because as of this recording, I recorded an episode, I think, a week or two ago about uh, Fight Club. And, you know, there's a, obviously a big twist in that movie, too. Mm-hmm. And I think it's kind of one of those elements where I knew about it, but I didn't know that I knew about it until it happened. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot that part of it. Like, it, it was, it didn't yeah, so come as a complete... Everyone. Exactly, yeah. Or like, or Psycho, or... Um, I don't mm-hmm. know, usual suspects, things like that, where it's one yeah. of those ubiquitous uh, plot twists that I, I um, it's one of the reasons that I, I don't want to show my daughter Empire until she, you know, until she gets to that right point where she can get the, the uh, she can have, feel the impact of that, <laughs> that twist. And, uh, and then I can show her the other movies and things like that. So it's, um, yeah, I know that it, I, I think I did know about it. Um, but I mean, it doesn't make me love it any less. I think it's, easily one of the uh, one of the best twists ever in, in movies and the fact that it upends everything and, and not only changes the course of this trilogy but also changes Luke's path and makes him question everything uh the the in the, watching it this time the searcher feelings you know it to be true actually reminded me a lot of we mentioned it already the Ray and Kylo Ren thing about her parents where he has mm-hmm. he, he tells her but she then he's like you know, you know, you already know. Why don't you just say it? Like then that, that I think that's an element of that scene that a lot of people are misreading that, uh, that, well, why would we believe Kylo Ren? He told her, but she, oh, she, she confirmed it in herself that she's like, well, yeah, that is the way it is. She's actually the one that says it. And I think in this scene, part of Luke's reaction is because when he tells him that he knows he has the, he has the force. So he's, he can feel it. He can feel that that's the truth, which is why he doesn't doubt it in this movie. Uh, even though Lucas obviously for younger viewers and things like that confirms it in return of the Jedi. Um, I, I think, I, I think it's, it's Luke's reaction and, and everything that really sell that moment and, uh, and the way that it completely turns the whole story on its head. Uh, I also wanted to mention too, Luke asks it a couple times here. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to ask it to you. What, why didn't Ben tell him? <laughs> why, what do you think was, was Obi-Wan's rationale? Do you think he was, 
save sparing Luke from the pain of realizing what his father had become? Do you think it was just shame because he failed his uh, Anakin? Or do you think maybe he was worried that it would inspire Luke to to turn down a slightly darker path? Um, I think it's a little bit of all those things. He's like really hurt. He considers Anakin his brother and he's also his mentor. He should have kind of noticed that he was going down this path, but he didn't. So there's a lot of shame with that. But um, yeah, I mean, Luke grew up without a father. If he heard he had a father somewhere and didn't understand the dark side or anything like that, he'd be like, Daddy Vader, pick me up, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. We, You don't know. Like, there was a point where I think, like, it's kind of that thing, like, in real life where you're like, okay, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it when it's the time's right. But then you wait so long to say something that you're like, it's too long. It's too, you waited too long to actually say it. Right. Yeah, there, there was no right time to tell him that his father was like a homicidal maniac who killed younglings. <laughs> And I don't think that they knew exactly what that twist was going to be when they did uh, A New Hope, but they knew that there was going to be something that they were holding back, I think, because when he asks uh, about his father, when he asks Obi-Wan about his father in, uh, at the Lars homestead in A New Hope, Alec Guinness kind of does this like hesitation face before he like makes up his, you know, tells him the truth from a certain point of view, basically. Uh, And I, and I think that that moment plays really well when you go back and rewatch the, the entire trilogy. I don't know. He just sells it so well. Um, Alec Guinness and the conversation they have in return of the Jedi about like how he kind of told him like Dark Vader did kill your father in a way. He consumed him. Yeah, he consumed him. Yeah. Who was Anakin Skywalker? And and it's crazy too because in 1979 or whenever they shot this, the links that they went to to keep that twist intact, there were different. I think for different. I feel like there were different versions of the script. There were definitely another line that David Prowse said on. Yeah, set. they said that Obi Obi Wan killed your father. Right. Exactly. And is what I, they said. I think Luke or Mark Hamill was one of the only people. Him, George Lucas, and. Uh, I think the you know the director or like only a very yeah. yeah there were only a few people on set that knew anything about that and it, it's it's like they were trying to beat the internet before there was an internet to to leak spoilers and things like that so I feel like in a, in a lot of ways this is kind of this movie kind of marks the beginning of our modern spoiler culture yeah and you can just imagine what would have happened if like Twitter existed back then. <laughs> And the kind of things that would have been spoiled. Oh my gosh, I know. Hashtag I am your father. And it was, yeah, and it's interesting, just like so many people did not believe it was true until Return of the Jedi like confirmed it. Right. So they spent like three years being like, Vader's lying, he's just trying to get him on his side. Yeah, we have the luxury now of just popping in the next, uh, the next Blu-ray and moving on from there. Or tweeting a director and being like, like the Russo brothers be like, why did this happen? And I'm like, it happened because of this and this, and this is true, you know, kind of thing. And, and, a, you know, speaking to the, the impact of the, um, the big twist, I think it's also really telling that we mentioned the special editions a few times that this one of the original trilogy is actually the one that has the fewest amount of changes. I think it's mostly cleaning up visual effects. There's some, um, some like, uh, 
I think they add some visuals to the the windows in Cloud City, like the approach is a little bit differently, a little bit more elaborate. But really, the only major changes are, I guess, in the Wampa attack. You actually see uh, the the Wampa in that scene. There's a they they added some footage there. Uh, Tamara Morrison doing the voice of of Boba Fett to pick up you know the consistency with Django. And then later in the Blu-ray, when they added Ian McDiarmid as the Emperor. Uh, what do you? How do you feel about the the changes that they made to this basically perfect film? And do you think that they add to the experience or hurt it in some way? Um, I personally think changing the Emperor is a lot different than changing Anakin at the end of Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. Just because it just it helps. Like if I'm going to show this movie to somebody who's never seen Star Wars before, and I start with A New Hope and go on, and then the prequels. It just helps it, you know, flow better and make more sense because I think like the original emperor was like a woman or something. It was like an old woman with like orangutan eyes, I think, superimposed over her face because they had no idea what they wanted that character to look like design wise. So just like, I don't know. He's got to look he's got to look otherworldly, I guess. Yeah. So and I mean, like. I love that. The emperor is like super creepy. I mean, like when everyone heard the laugh at the end of the trailer for Rise of the Skywalker, everyone knew whose laugh that was. Right. There's definitely some things that he adds that I just find unnecessary, like the singing in Jabba's palace. Jeez, Return of the Jedi is a hot mess with that some of that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah, Empire Strikes Back, the stuff he does change, it doesn't do anything to the story. It doesn't take away, it doesn't ruin the pacing or anything like that. So, I mean, I kind of understand it. Yeah, and I like the um, in the Emperor scene specifically, they tweak the dialogue a little bit because obviously now they have the hindsight of knowing exactly what has happened before, having had the prequels and everything at that point. And it highlights a little bit, a little bit more hints at Vader's uh, Vader's, I guess, call to Luke at the end of the movie where he's like, join me, we can rule the galaxy as father and son, because that scene with the Emperor now has a little bit of an undercurrent that maybe, that obviously Vader knows more than uh, than he's letting on with the Emperor. The Emperor's like, oh, you know, the Skun of Skywalker must not become a Jedi, blah, blah, blah. He's like, oh, how could that be possible? Obviously, Vader can feel that's his son, you know, after encountering him in, uh, in A New Hope, and he has already an inkling of what's going on with that. So, um, that he's basically trying to keep keep that on the down low so that he can recruit Luke to overthrow the emperor uh which he you know he says to Luke at the end of the film which which makes sense because that's why there's always two Sith they're always betraying each other even at in Revenge of the Sith he's telling Padme he's like hey I'm more powerful than the chancellor I could overthrow him we can make things the way we want them to be um <laughs> so I, I I like that element of it too that it's it hints at a kind of a, a power struggle between the two Sith Lords uh, over the course of the movie that they're kind of vying for who's going to who's going to get Luke to their side to uh, to overthrow the other the other person, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, because there can only be two. And Vader right. knows that. And he's like, oh, you want my son on my on your side. You just want a younger man, I guess. You know, <laughs> want to replace me. But that also reminds that also probably started Vader's descent, especially against the Emperor, like realizing, oh, he lied to me that like Pape died and the baby's with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she was she wasn't dead. She might have died, but she wasn't dead by his hand. And she was alive enough to give birth. 
And then she lost the will to live, apparently. Oh, I hate that so much. <laughs> yeah, I, so much. I, 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 love, I love Revenge of the Sith, but that's one element that I'm like, oh, you could have done something different there. I don't know. I think they were trying to go over, like, the fan theory, and my personal fan theory is that she was feeling the transformation of Anakin. They were so interlocked with the Force, it just, like, kind of killed her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's that, a- that her life essence was being sucked through the Force to help Vader live. Yeah. Or something like that. That was the theory. That's interesting. I can see that. I just rather believe that than she, because her husband's gone, even though she has two babies to take care of and she's like this, this powerful politician, she's just going to die instead. <laughs> yeah, it's completely inconsistent with who Padme has been depicted as from uh, up to that point. Especially how she's, you know, fighting for the Republic and fighting for all this stuff. And now it's all gone to shit. And she's just going to be like, oh, uh, my man left me. Oh, I have no no purpose anymore. It's it's really, yeah, it's it's really frustrating from that regard. And I also and think it's like there's... like saying, screw you, babies. <laughs> <laughs> You're on your own. Uncle Obi-Wan. Yeah. Take care of you. Um, there's also an element, I think, in, in Revenge of the Sith. And then we'll get back to Empire, obviously. Uh, that I think... That, where it's, a, it's a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy where he pursued, he, he reacted to the dream that he was having, which may have been even placed in his head by Palpatine in some way. Uh, since we know, we know from the last Jedi, I guess that you can like force project and, and put visions on each other and things like that. So I wouldn't be surprised if it was sort of one of those situations where if Anakin hadn't reacted the way that he reacted to those dreams, he, he basically caused all of it. Uh, in a way, kind of like he, she didn't die by his hand, but kind of also by his hand, sort of. It's weird. It's 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 a very murky the end of that movie, and I don't even know if Lucas himself really knows what what happened there. Yeah, and you can also just blame the Jedi. Like, obviously, obviously, something's going on with the, like your top Jedi. Like, figure it out, guys. Right. He's been married for like three years. Yeah, they're not they're, with the dark side clouds everything, so they're not that good at picking up some of those, including things. their eyes, apparently. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> that's true. Uh, I do like though that the the prequels do add a sense of history to the to the original trilogy. I mean, there are certain elements where it doesn't add up, like we said. But um, for example, the thing with Slave One following Han Solo, which Lucas sort of retconned a little bit in. Um, uh, Attack of the Clones, where Obi Wan kind of pulls off a similar trick, where he he unleashes, he, he uh, unloads the spare parts canister and kind of drifts away with those. And then Jango Fett, had, you know, that Boba Fett basically saw a variation on what uh, Han does here with with the garbage. In uh, Attack of the Clones, as a young boy with his father, he was his father, and it informs his decision here to follow them and how he finds them. Or or when when uh, Yoda's telling Luke about the Force and tapping into and having visions and old friends long gone. You can kind of picture, I guess, Mace Windu and some of the Jedi that he he used to work with. Even things like Luke here has kind of the same attachment issue that his father does, where he throws caution to the wind and goes to pursue his friends. And yeah, maybe he saved Han and Leia, but he didn't really save Han. <laughs> I mean, Han is still in the situation that, that he is in, uh, in part, I guess, because they were unsure if Harrison Ford was going to come back for Return of the Jedi. Um, but but the prequels do do add that element where you can kind of see the parallels between Luke and then what happened to Anakin. So I, I what do you think about uh, the way that that all fits together and uh, the way that the prequels maybe don't you know maybe they don't tarnish this as much because we still have these movies standing on their own, but they do recontextualize them a bit. Yeah, it shows like the path that Luke could have gone on. Right. 
or and or even Anakin could have become what Luke was. It it adds the prequels add some stuff, but I don't know. The prequels um, help me out a lot with like Obi Wan's character because Ewan McGregor was just such a solid performance in there mm-hmm. that I kind of feel like I understand Obi Wan more and. I do appreciate like the Clone Wars, like building them, building the universe out, and kind of understanding more about <laughs> the politics and where the stormtroopers came from, and just this kind of stuff. It doesn't help much with Vader. It kind of undermines the mystique of Vader. Obviously, that's that's the kind of, I think the big sin behind the prequels is that it, it turned Darth Vader, Dark Lord of the Sith, into Jake Lloyd. Yeah, and I mean, like, that scene in Empire Strikes Back um, where he's walking to the Hoth, um, the rebel base, I don't know why that terrified me. Like, because I was imagining, like, being in the Millennium Falcon with Han and Leia and just seeing Vader there. Oh, my God. I'd be like, shoot him, even though nothing would happen. Like, he was such a menacing presence. Seeing him do that, no, at the end of Revenge of the Sith kind of, like, takes a little bit of it away. Well, the fact that also in pretty much all of the original trilogy, but I think this movie really keys down on it, on it even more so, he's just going around killing Imperial officers like willy-nilly, like all over the place. Like mm-hmm. the, the, the turnover for the Empire must be crazy because you have the whole thing with Captain Nita. I think it's, isn't it also this film where he, he kills somebody and then promotes the other guy like in the same conversation? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, that's, a real, that's a real thing in here too. Uh, Vader is just has very little patience for for failure and um i especially like when he shows up on on bespin and it's just it's, and and there's i think it's uh what is it was it family guy that did the uh, the star wars trilogy and he's like in there like re- rehearsing like when he's going to say the line or whatever and then they open it and he wasn't ready and and i i like i just like imagining vader sitting at a dinner table all set up ready to go and he's like won't you join us? Like, what are they going to sit down and have a meal after that point? I don't even understand the, what the premise is there. But uh, I, I like, I like, you know, speaking to what you said about Vader popping up in unexpected places. That made me think of that and Lando's double cross and the way that they. Uh, Leia actually says it's a trap before Admiral Akbar does in the next film, which I, I also mm-hmm. noticed this time. Yeah, her just—that's another thing. Like her yelling that to get make sure Luke knows, and just being like pulled away is like something so realistic and kind of silly yeah. that it was like before in A New Hope, she's like a princess and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, if your friends cut walking into like a Sith Lord trap, you're gonna scream your lungs out and make sure he knows. A few more things I want to bring up here, and then we'll kind of start winding down. Uh, I, I really love the design on Cloud City. That whole sequence, like it's just really gorgeous. The, the sunset outside when they try and stop the slave one from taking off. Uh, Han and in, in Carbonite is still a really kind of a startling image even now. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, I like uh, at the end, Luke gets his hand cut off. Obviously, tumbles down the reactor shaft and contacts Leia, and, and I. You know, I, I wonder now if the plan was always going to be that Leia was going to have some variation of 
the force because this is really the first hint that we get that she can tap into it because Luke reaches out and she, you know, she, she answers basically. Mm-hmm. So do you think that, that, uh, that, that in, in and of itself shows that she is, uh, you know, has force abilities or do you think maybe when they made this movie, they were unsure that they were going to have them be related, obviously, because they kiss towards the beginning of the movie, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is, which is of course one of the funniest things to bring up about the saga. But, um, or do you think that was they were, they weren't really thinking that at the time, and maybe just he he's able to connect with non force users? Yeah, I think well, like I think Yoda says, like everyone's connected to the force in some regards. It's just some people are able to use it. So, and I think like Leia was the only one of his friends that he saw, or he probably saw Chewbacca and stuff like that. But he has this strong bond with Leia. Right. I mean, first he calls out for Ben. Not gonna, Ben's, Ben's, not gonna not him. Ben's not gonna help you at that point. He's yeah. as far as we Ben's know. Ben's like I told you. <laughs> as far as we know, the the Force Ghosts are, I guess, non corporeal. Like I don't think what Ben would really be able to do at that point. Uh, but Yoda could create lightning. Apparently, so, I mean, that's true. We don't know. That's true. Well, we'll see we what the Rise know. of Skywalker does with that. Yeah, they're just like all these Force, all these Force Ghosts just beat up Kylo Ren. It would be awesome. <laughs> that would be awesome. Just all strike him down by with lightning. Well, they have the uh, the um, well, well. Some podcast or wherever I read this, they they they, they called the uh, the Ray and Kylo, I guess communications. They they did kind of a variation on FaceTime, and they called it Force Time. So that's what I like hmm? to call it Force Time. But you have Force Time. You have now the Force projection. So I feel like all bets are off now as far as what we can do here. This was actually the first one where we got Force Jump in this movie for the first time. Uh, I believe, and yeah, yeah, I think that that's really exploring the the range of abilities that, that Force users have, I think, is always really fun. Um, one other thing I wanted to bring up, too, is the vision quest in the dark side cave. I always wondered, and maybe you have your own your own uh, interpretation of this, like, how, how did this place get there? Why is that cave strong in the dark side of the forest. And obviously the significance is that he could turn out to be like Vader. And that's really driven home later in the film when Vader takes his hand, which I like to think that that's just Vader being sentimental and be like, I'm going to turn you into me. First, you got to lose your hand and then we'll take it from there. Yeah. I think maybe just Yoda chose Dagobah because it's strong with the force and things like that. So, I mean, there's always balance with the force. So there's the dark side and light side part of it. The planet probably maybe I'd have no idea. Well, the fact that the force is inherent in nature, and this is he goes to a very, very natural planet where there's creatures and plants and like everything mm-hmm. kind of. So that, I think that's yeah. I mean, maybe you might be onto something. Maybe it's just bursting with force energy, uh, and maybe that maybe that cloaks him from Vader and Emperor Palpatine a little bit. It's on some level because at the end of Revenge of the Sith, there's the deleted scene where. Uh, Yoda takes uh, you know he's he did the scene of Yoda landing on Dagobah and as far as we know Palpatine is still searching for Yoda who kind of pieced out of the Senate chamber when he realized he was not going to be able to take out um, the Chancellor or the Emperor I guess at that point already uh, on his own so yeah I mean you might be onto something there that's probably part of it I, I also wanted to point out that I really love, I think this is the best use of 3PO in the entire saga. I think in a lot of movies, <laughs> he's either super underused, which is fine sometimes because he's not really one of my favorite characters, but like in Force Awakens where he shows up briefly and you're like, okay, there you go. That's my, uh, my appearance. So I'm in all the movies, move on. 
or like Attack of the Clones, where they rely too much on him to be like to be spouting oh, off yeah. puns and things like that. But the robot uh, theme, the robot factory scene. How perverse! I was, I was repressing that. <laughs> sorry, sorry about that. I didn't mean to. No, I was just reminded. <laughs> be sensitive. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I think they nail him in here as kind of being Agreed. the uh, an obstacle between Han and Leia, and uh, it being sort of the the you know commentator on everything that's going on and adding even more stakes and adding a little bit of lightness to scenes without overtaking them. Uh, so I, I thought that three, this is probably the only movie where 3PO is really used in, in, in an integral way that doesn't distract from the rest of the story. And I like, too, the way that uh, even in this film, we find out much later in Force Awakens that Han and Leia obviously did get together. They had a child and all of that. But you can see a little bit the like the the sense of uh, how their love would struggle in the long term in this film, where she's devoted to the Rebel Alliance and he's got commitments elsewhere. He's kind of driven, you know, to, to he's, he's a wanderer. He's a nomad by nature. So you can see that in this film already before they even really fall uh, in love and they run out really together. You can see the, the elements within each character that draws them apart between episode six and seven. Yeah, what is that speed quote that they say, like, relationships that happen in the middle of, like, <laughs> yeah, 10 situations? Nevertheless, yeah. Yeah. So, like, ugh, ugh. Yeah, that was the thing. In, like, Return of the Jedi, you can believe, like, maybe they, like, sat down and talked and maybe had some counseling and, you know, had a bunch of kids and was ha- were happy. And then you're like, oh, Force Awakens, that didn't happen. No, exactly. exactly. They were there. Yeah, they. I, I just imagine that between Revenge, Return of the Jedi, and Force Awakens, after Ben uh, went, you know, they they were probably. I, I kind of see them as kind of on again, off again, and in, in very rocky relationships, just because they are so different in a lot of ways. And uh, but you know that chemistry is there, so it's like yeah, the <laughs> canon books I've read, like I think it's Bloodlines. She's always doing her, you know, political stuff. And he's, you know, I think he works, he does racing. I don't think it's pod racing, but it's some kind of racing. So he's, he's like helping like underprivileged kids and stuff like that. And he's still like traveling around. So they have a relationship, but like, they're not together all the time. Right. Kind of long distance at time. That's the, I mean, that makes sense. That's honestly the... The, the more plausible way that this relationship would pan out long term. So Yeah, and uh, Luke has their kid, so it's like Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. They got stuff to do. Do you do you think that this is the best lightsaber battle in the saga? I mean I know that's it's 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 hard to say because it's like, are we going based on like personals, like character beats? Are we going based on the choreography or the music? Or like, so where would you put this as far as the lightsaber battles in in the other films of the saga? Um, I have to say that um, *Phantom Menace*. The best thing about it again is the dual fate scene. They see it, the whole thing with *Empire Strikes*. The 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 fight between Luke and Vader is Vader's holding back, you can tell. Like, mm. And then when he doesn't quite hold back as much, Luke gets his butt kicked. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's good for, again, the character building, and you see the characterizations in the way they fight, like how Luke draws his lightsaber first. But that just shows how impatient he is, like Obi-Wan and Yoda keep telling him. So it's just all about the characterization. Right. Because, you know, if Vader wanted him dead, he would have been dead. Yeah. 
that's a good point that you bring up with Luke igniting his saber first. It's as of this recording, it's funny because today my wife and I we just showed our daughter Lion King for the first time, which another uh-huh. James Earl Jones uh, performance there, and he says something. Uh, Mufasa says, "The what?" <laughs> He's a good father in that. Yeah, I know. It's weird. It's weird. It's using the same <laughs> skill set in a completely different way. Uh, but in that film, Mufasa says something to Simba about how, you know, he, he's brave when he has to be, but that doesn't mean going and looking for trouble. And I think the fact that Luke does come in lightsaber ablazing just shows the fact that he's just ready to jump right into the fight, not even, uh, you know, using, using the force more for attack than for knowledge and defense, kind of ignoring what Yoda told him earlier in the film. So I think that's that's an interesting detail to bring up. And also when Vader's throwing the uh, basically the the room at uh, at Luke, he doesn't have a Senate chamber like Palpatine did. But it, the music that's playing with the it's kind of building. It's it's very similar. I think the same music that's used in Revenge of the Sith at the beginning of Yoda and Palpatine's uh, battle. So uh, which again ends with a lot of stuff thrown around. Uh, so I thought that I think. It was. It's always fun to watch these movies now. The, at least the six that Lucas was involved in, and the way that they parallel each other. And uh, I guess you know he calls them like rhyming, like poems. And even this film with Last Jedi has obviously a lot of of earmarks, things that that are recur. Whether it's visual, like with the the sand planet, which now I'm blanking on the name of it, and uh, Hoth with the snow and all all of that stuff. I think it's, it's really interesting to consider. Um, and yeah, of course, this one best uh, visual effects, it won a visual effects special achievement Oscar and things like that. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with the rise of Skywalker. But do you, you know, one thing that I, I thought of watching this now is that it ends with Han Solo and Carbonite, obviously, and then this big cliffhanger. And of course, there was a book that has now been considered legends. It's not canon anymore. Uh, Shadows of the Empire, which tells that story that takes place. Uh, in between this film and Return of the Jedi, since Lucasfilm clearly is at a little bit of an impasse with the Star Wars films, where they're developing stuff, but they don't really know 100% whether going long-term. They're not, they're not rolling out the red carpet Marvel style and be like, here's the next 10 movies we're coming out with. <laughs> um, at least not yet. We'll see what happens. Uh, yeah. do, you, do you think that they should consider adapting Shadows of the Empire in some, in some way, shape, or form, whether it's a, uh, a Disney Plus series or an, an animated film, or, or what, what would, you, would you like to see them do something with that property? Um, I remember reading it as a kid and liking it, um, but at the same time, like if Carrie Fisher can't be Leia, right. I'm not sure if I want it. Yeah. And yeah, it could be like an animated series or something like that, but there's so many, like you were saying before, there's so many other stories to tell. Right. The universe is so big. That's because that's always of all the many, many Star Wars novels. That feels that's one of the ones that most a lot of pretty much like I only read of a couple of them or a few of them really growing up. And that was one of the ones that I had because it ties it fills in such a huge gap in the in the, uh, in the saga. So I, I, I'd be curious to see if they would at least draw maybe elements from that. I mean, even uh, Admiral Thrawn showed up on, on yeah. Rebels, so I wouldn't be surprised if they they pick and choose parts of that for, for something. But yeah, I agree with you. It's It'd be kind of impossible to do anything live action without obviously recasting Leia, and I don't think that's something that they want to do, and I don't think that's something anybody really wants to see them do. But yeah, um, yeah I read all the, had all the books. I read the X-Wing series. I... I mean, there was too many, so I didn't read all of them. Right. But 
Yeah, there's. I like how they're bringing some of the more popular things like Thrawn into Rebels. So it's not quite like Legends is dead. Exactly. I, I think that book is still considered canon in a way. Like, I don't think it disagrees. I haven't read it since Disney took over. If it disagrees with some of the mythos of the official Star Wars canon. Yeah, they might not have contradicted it yet, which I guess, again, kind of lends you know, the possibility that they could uh, re-canonize it at some point and, uh, and, to, and uh, you know, do something with that. So it'll be interesting to see what they do going forward. So as, of, uh, as for Empire Strikes Back, is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you wanted to, uh, that you wanted to touch on? Um, oh, as a child, Yoda being that silly puppet, like silly Muppet kind of character at the beginning, I thought was the best thing in the entire world. Yeah. When he's just throwing things around and doing that, like kind of laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was like amazing as a child. And I was like, and then I was like, oh my God, he's a Jedi Knight. <laughs> you know, it got me. Well, especially, and uh, yeah, I, I love his, his whole, basically he's testing Luke's patience and he's trying to, you know, right out the gate, he's already slipping into the, the mentor and the teacher uh, mode before Luke even knows what the hell's going on, which I think is great. But also if you're like me and you grew up loving the Muppets, the fact that you basically have essentially a Muppet in the Star Wars movies as one of the most important characters in the saga, I, I yeah, I, I love that like to pieces. That's part of probably the reason that Yoda is considered one of my favorite characters, just um, because of how badass the character is, but also just the way he's brought to life with Frank Oz doing the voice and performing the puppet and all that stuff. That's why it was such, it was, it was so uh, powerful a moment for me to see him pop up again in the last Jedi in puppet form with Frank Oz performing yeah. it and all that stuff, even kind of acting kind of mischievous and like messing with Luke again a little bit. Uh, so, so that was, that was a real, obviously a real throwback. And one of the many ways in which last Jedi kind of hat tips to empire without Without retelling Being the story, a carbon, carbon. yeah. Looking at you, Force Awakens. Even though mm -hmm. I love, I love that movie, but the yeah, the fact that it, it does you a little too close to a New Hope is definitely uh, a definitely valid concern. So, uh, so if there's not anything else, uh, Candace, can you tell people where they can find you on social media? Yeah, we're Geeky Girl Gab. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and you can find our podcasts wherever podcasts are. So great. So Candace Caw, thank you so much for coming on the Crooked Table podcast. People listening to this episode, if you want to hear Candace talk about more, more fun, geeky stuff, definitely check out Geeky Girl Gab. Uh, this was a lot of fun. I'm glad we got a chance to, to talk and be on a podcast together. Finally, I know we've been talking about one forever about collaborating and just keeps slipping through the cracks. But, uh, you know, if we were going to if you were going to come on on this podcast uh, for anything, it makes sense that it was your favorite movie, basically. Yeah, my favorite movie of all time, like period. Right. Like, not just Star Wars movie. Yeah, not just Star Wars. Just like, yeah. But yeah, I'll definitely have you on Geeky Girl Gab once I figure out my schedule with my co-hosts. Yeah, that's always the thing that's that's tricky. It's uh, so we do we do this out of the the goodness of our heart and the the passion that we have for uh, for entertainment and pop culture and stuff. Great. Okay, well, thanks. <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks, Candace. It was great. Have a good one. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com/guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash table. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the little